The title of this evening's talk is Practice Here, Practice There, Practice Everywhere. So, here we all are, coming very close to the end of our intensive practice period here. Soon to be taking yourself and taking your practice out there, wherever there is for each of you. Which actually, for the most part, uh, for probably each one of you, will entail a much longer period of intensive practice than this five weeks with the possibility of wherever you go, wherever you are, there's your practice. I think that uh, many of us come to the end of a retreat with some thoughts and uh, feelings that are maybe not so dissimilar from what we entered retreat with. I think for many people, uh, though there's a feeling of excitement and a, a sense of readiness to go into an extended uh, period of intensive practice as a retreat, sometimes just before it's time to enter in, there might be the feeling coming up or the words coming up in the mind, well, I'm not quite finished yet out here. I need a few more days, maybe another week, so I can do everything that needs to be done, and then I'll be ready to go into an intensive period of practice. And it seems that some of us have similar thoughts when it's time to come out of an intensive period of practice. Maybe some excitement and some degree of readiness to go out into the larger world. And yet, there might be some thoughts such as, well, uh, uh, just a little bit more time. A few more days would be good. A week would be, that would even be better. Well, a month would be, I think that might be really good to do what needs to be done. And then, and then I'll be finished. You noticed that little question tilt at the end of it. And then I'll be finished. Who knows? <laughs> and then I'll be ready to come out of intensive retreat practice. And I'll be ready to go back out there. Some of you may have had similar thoughts wafting through the mind. And sometimes on either end, the going into intensive practice and uh, the coming out of an intensive practice period, there might be sometimes some degree of reluctance, maybe some feeling of resistance, maybe some fear of the unknown, or fear of the seeming known, or maybe 
essentially just fear of change. Fear of ending one way and entering into another way. And for some, coming into a retreat, intensive retreat practice period, there might have been a sense of urgency for some of you. Just can't wait to get into retreat again. Really ready. And there might be a sense of urgency coming out of retreat. I just cannot wait to get out of this retreat. (laughs) I just can't wait to get out there. To get into regular life. So just consider your own mind. Check in with yourself and see if there might be some of these same kinds of thoughts and feelings. Maybe some similar patterns within your own mind and heart that are coming up now at the end of this retreat that you may have experienced in some similar ways as you were preparing to come here and that you may have felt at the onset of this retreat. And of course we we may not feel any anxiety or any other strong mental states in either direction, entering into a retreat or coming out of a retreat. There's, of course, the possibility that one might just feel a very clean, clear, open readiness and, and a kind of happiness without any particular expectations or worries about moving on to the next thing, moving on to the next phase and form that life will take. At a retreat, a three-month retreat that I taught quite a number of years ago at IMS, one person described coming out of retreat. She said it, it felt like she was descending, like she was landing. She said she really felt the force of gravity like she was coming back to earth. There's a beautiful piece that was written by the American astronaut Russell Swicart regarding his experience traveling in outer space. And I'd like to share that with you. You recall staring out there at the spectacle that went before your eyes. Because now you're no longer inside something with a window looking out at a picture. There are no frames. There are no boundaries. You're really out there going 25,000 miles an hour, ripping through space, a vacuum, and there's not a sound. There's a silence, the depth of which you've never experienced before. And that silence contrasts so markedly with the scenery, with what you're seeing, and the speed with which you know you're going. That contrast, the mix of those two things, really comes through. And you think about what you're experiencing and, and why. Do you deserve this, this fantastic experience? Have you earned this in some way? Are you separated out to be 
touched by God, to have some special experience here that other people can't have? And you know the answer to that is no. There's nothing that you've done that deserves that, that earned that. It's not a special thing for you. You know very well at that moment, and it comes through to you so powerfully that you're a sensing element for humans. You look down and see the surface of that globe that you've lived on all this time, and you know all those people down there. They are like you, they are you, and somehow you represent them. A sensing element, that point out on the end. And that's a humbling feeling. It's a feeling that says you have a responsibility. It's not just for yourself. The eye that doesn't see doesn't do justice to the body. That's why it's there. That's why you're out there. And somehow you recognize that you're a piece of this total life. You're out there on that forefront and you have to bring that back somehow. And that becomes a rather special responsibility. It tells you something about your relationship with this thing we call life. And so that's a change. That's something new. And when you come back, there's a difference in that world now. There's a difference in that relationship between you and that planet and you and all those other forms of life on that planet because you've had that kind of experience. It's a difference, and it's so precious. And as we all know, there is a change about to happen. And also, of course, we're aware of all the various changes that occurred during your time in retreat. And so reflecting on the supports available to you as we begin to make this change out of retreat life into life in the larger world. One change being the pace of life. At least outwardly, Life appears, uh, and it appears to and it feels like it moves a lot faster outside of intensive retreat. And yet, we're supported as we move into a lar- the larger world with some understanding from our five weeks here of practice of how quickly and how incessantly things change within our own body-mind continuum, and how quickly and how incessantly things change all around us, even in the slowed-down pace of retreat life. This understanding, this wisdom, is a great support and a great protection as we make this change from retreat practice to practice in the world. Reconnecting with a larger world in the day-to-dayness and the moment-to-momentness in the incessant and often very fast-paced changes that happen 
in our daily lives. And many of you, if not all of you, at least to some degree, have had some taste of the impersonality of change. You've certainly tasted that we can't stop change. And that even though we might try, we can't hold on to anything. And maybe you've tasted how painful it is to try. (coughs) Has concentration, mindfulness, acceptance, kindness in relationship to yourself and others As all of this developed over these weeks, (coughs) excuse me, So I'll begin the sentence again. As concentration and mindfulness, acceptance and kindness in relationship to your own body-mind continuum and in relationship to everything around you during this retreat, as all of this developed over these weeks, you've had some glimpse that whatever it is that you experience in the body, mind, and heart that any of these experiences come together because of myriad causes and conditions. In truth, an unfathomable number of conditions coalescing in that moment. And then it, whatever it is, it changes. And it changes quite quickly. Or it simply disappears. These tastes, this understanding, has a deep and beneficial effect on how we think about things and how we relate in the world. There's more clarity in relationship to our deepest goals and aspirations and what we choose to do or not do. There's more clarity in relationship to the choices that we make. More connection and clarity 
in our relationships with others. More clarity with what's appropriate and what's important, what's wholesome and what's really, truly respectful and kind. These tastes, this understanding, is a great support and a great protection as we reconnect with the larger world. Here in retreat, life is considerably pared down, a life of much more simplicity than most of us have outside of retreat. So this certainly also is a change from here to there. Life in retreat offers relatively or really quite a a little bit of outside distraction, very little outside distraction. We sit, we walk, we listen to to Dhamma talks, you do your yogi job, you sleep, you've spoken a little bit every couple days or maybe almost every day during practice meetings. But it's pretty, pretty simple life. And within this container of simplicity, you've been encouraged and supported to develop a depth and clarity of a focused attention and to mindfully pay attention to what occurs with each breath, each rising and falling, and also what occurs in the mind, the body, the heart. And you've been invited to sense see and know is the mind the heart opening to connecting with receiving the breath or various other occurrences in the body-mind continuum or is the attention spaced out disconnected, separated or maybe caught, stuck in some physical phenomena or some thought form With all of this practice and learning bringing us closer and closer to sensing, seeing, and knowing what brings suffering and what brings ease, what brings calm, joy, what brings a sense of well-being. You've been learning to recognize respect, care about, and attend to all of these cycles within your own mind, heart, and body. This sensing, seeing, and knowing is also a great support and a great protection as we reconnect with the larger world. We're all really so similar, no matter who we are, no matter where we live, our culture, our age, our ethnic background, our color, our gender orientation. Really, all of us are just variations on the theme of being human. We're all totally 
interconnected. We're all totally interdependent on this small planet that we all share. Sila, virtue, living ethically, living respectfully, living harmlessly, wends its way into being the ground of our life quite naturally as our understanding of what brings suffering and what brings ease deepens (coughs) and blossoms in our heart. (coughs) As we come to see and know this through intensive practice, it affects how we communicate, how we use language, and of course it affects our actions. Seeing into our own minds and seeing into our own heart and body affects and informs the motivation behind the words and the actions that we take out in the world. And some words from the Buddha regarding this. The thought manifests as the word. The word manifests as the deed. The deed develops into habit and habit hardens into character. So watch the thought and its ways with care and let it spring from love born out of concern for all beings. The possibility of engaging in the refuges and precepts as part of your daily practice, maybe beginning the day chanting them self, chanting them silently or maybe out loud to yourself. This can be a powerful aspect of encouraging the purification of our thoughts, our words, and our actions. There's a particular rendition of the precepts that was written by a woman named Stephanie Kaza, Uh, who used to live, doesn't anymore, but used to live at the Green Gulch Zen Farm. And I'd like to share her rendition of it because it's particularly relevant to daily life in the larger world. Knowing how deeply our lives intertwine, we vow not to kill. Knowing how deeply our lives intertwine, we vow to not take what is not given. Knowing how deeply our lives intertwine, we vow to not engage in abusive relationships. Knowing how deeply our lives intertwine, we vow to not speak falsely or deceptively. Knowing how deeply our lives intertwine, we vow to not harm self or others through poisonous thought or substance. Knowing how deeply our lives intertwine, we vow to not dwell on past errors. Knowing how deeply our lives intertwine, we vow to not speak of self separate from others. Knowing how deeply our lives intertwine, we vow to not possess any thing or form of life selfishly. Knowing how deeply our lives intertwine, we vow to not harbor ill will toward any plant, animal, or human being. 
Knowing how deeply our lives intertwine, we vow to not abuse the great truth of the three treasures, the Buddha, the Dhamma, and the Sangha. For me, and I'm sure also for some of you or maybe all of you, over my years of practice in the simplicity of, a, of the retreat setting, I've been inspired and motivated to simplify my own life, to live my daily life in retreat and outside of retreat um, in a way that serves and supports this process of the purification of the heart, this process of the purification of the mind. And sometimes this happens through a conscious intent to let go of particular habits uh, or distractions. And also, as practice deepens and as it matures, there's more and more often a letting go, a simplification that unfolds quite naturally with no feeling of forcing anything. We more and more easily and naturally relinquish the habits and the distractions in our life that don't serve this awakening process that we're learning about and that you have committed yourself to. And it's often, this simplification is often around quite ordinary, very mundane aspects of life. So an example that I like to offer at the end of uh, the retreat, some of you have heard this before, and I think it's relevant for two reasons. One is uh, that occasionally it still comes up for me, not very often anymore, but occasionally. And I think because Every one of you in this room will either be driving a vehicle soon or you'll be riding in a vehicle soon. So this is the example. There was a time, quite some time ago now, uh, when I would get into my car to go somewhere with me driving and I would automatically turn on the radio. Never thought about it, just turn it on right away. Well, at some point, I began to notice it as a distraction. So I decided not to turn it on all the time. So I'd begin driving somewhere, and my hand would sort of start to come up, kind of automatically, begin moving towards the knob for the radio or the button. And then I'd bring it back down again. As you well know, the force of habit is really, really strong. At some point in this practice process, I began noticing the thought to turn on the radio. Well, that was a, that was a, a big, important piece of this practice. Because when I noticed the thought to turn on the radio, the choice was there then very available to or not to. And it's worked quite well.
just a report, a practice report for you all from me. <laughs> Going uh, back and forth uh, home for a day or two uh, every week during this retreat. Never once did I turn on the radio. It never even occurred to me to turn on the radio. And uh, coming back this afternoon, I thought, wow, that's great. It never even crossed my mind to turn it on. So it's working. (laughs) So looking at another change in this very simple and quiet space of retreat, there certainly may have been some big days or maybe some big events for you. And an especially big day or an especially big event for some of you might have been something as mundane as our laundry days. Mm-hmm. <laughs> for me, uh, there were times um, in the early years of my uh, intensive retreat practice when laundry day was such a huge addition to my day that I would find myself planning for it at night while I was lying in bed trying to go to sleep or just thinking about it uh, you know, sometime that evening. And then it would be the very first thing that would come into my mind as soon as I woke up in the morning. So I suspect some of you may have some similar experience maybe regarding this big day of laundry day. We've had quite a few of them during this retreat. Maybe you got used to it after a while. How about the big event of the midday meal? Now there's a big event every day. What will we have for lunch today? Or even as you're eating today's lunch, what will we have for lunch tomorrow? (laughs) Or, oh, I remember what we had for lunch yesterday as you're eating the meal today. Or how about the big event of having a one-on-one practice meeting? with one of the three teachers here. There's a very short poem by wandering a Japanese Buddhist uh, poet, um, Nanao Sakaki, who died some years ago. And the title of his poem is called A Big Day. Getting water at the spring carrying firewood, chattering with a neighbor. The sun goes down. A big day. Many years ago now, Nanao used to spend time up at the Lama Foundation, which is about 20 minutes from here as the crow flies. And he'd show up at Lama with his small knapsack and a a sleeping bag and he'd stay up at the Lama Foundation in one of the uh, buildings there for a few days and they were always very happy to put him up. And then he would head out into the mountains with just this, nothing more than what he'd arrived with. And sometimes he'd be gone for a couple of weeks and then he'd be back, back again at Lama for a day or two. A very dear friend of mine who was the coordinator up at the Lama Foundation <clears throat> uh, during those years told me a story 
uh, of one of the times when Nanao came. Uh, he had come in, come in from a day or two from his stay out in the mountains. And he invited my friend and another friend uh, to come and have dinner with him at his camp uh, in a few days. Well, my friend was just thrilled because such an invitation had never been offered before by Nanao. It was really something special. So on the appointed day and at the appointed time, my friend and the other invitee found their way to Nanao's camping spot by following his very careful directions. And when they got there, Nanao was there, but there was no food ready or no food in view for dinner. Nanao had told them not to bring anything with them. He said that it wouldn't be necessary, that there there was plenty of food. Well, my friend said that they thought maybe they'd made a mistake, that uh, this was the wrong day. But Nanao was so delighted to see them, and he welcomed them very warmly and heartily and said, Okay, now let's go out and find dinner. Well, my friend said that they, they walked and they picked and they dug up various wild foods. And then they came back to the camp, Nanao's camping area and they built a fire and they cooked what needed cooking and ate raw what didn't need to be cooked and had an incredibly delicious dinner. She said they finally understood how Nanao could go out into the mountains for days or sometimes weeks at a time with almost nothing and come back strong, healthy, and very happy. Once someone in a practice meeting spoke about the simplicity of uh, life on retreat as, as having a good taste, they said. So we taste it. We taste this good taste. And we, in a sense, we take it with us, this good taste. It wends its way into our life in many small and sometimes big ways. And of course, as we all know, life outside of retreat can be quite complex at times. Our home and family life, our sangha and monastic community life, our work life, our social life, And yet there certainly are ways that we can let go of some of the complexity. And we often do this little by little as our practice deepens in and out of retreat. We make choices in relationship to the work that we do. We make choices in the way that we spend time with family and the way we spend time with friends and partners and community members. We make choices in how we spend our free time. We really, truly have the possibility of simplifying at least to some degree every aspect of our life. We really, truly have the possibility of expanding and deepening this good taste that we take with us from the simplicity of retreat life. And of course, there are certainly some 
very complex responsibilities and commitments that we must continue with in our life. The taste of simplicity in retreat has another very beneficial effect on our life outside of retreat. It affects and inspires the way we expend our energy, what we put our energy towards, how we use our energy, even in the midst of complex activity and relationships and responsibilities. From our experience in retreat practice, we learn, we see, we come to know more and more clearly when we're off balance in the way we engage and use our energy. And we take this knowing into our life outside of retreat. As we intuitively, naturally find ourselves letting go of old habits and old habituated unskillful ways of of being and doing, we find ourselves connecting with more skillful and more wholesome ways of being and doing. And we begin to feel more balance within ourselves and within our life as a whole. And we find then that we have more energy and more time available for our life. More time and energy available for our whole life and the specifics of our life to more and more directly and more clearly be our practice. So simplicity inwardly and outwardly in times of retreat as we reconnect with a larger world. Simplicity being a great support and a great protection here and there. A great support and a great protection everywhere along this step-by-step journey. Considering the possibility of our whole life as our practice, How can we develop and deepen our practice in the midst of our everyday lives? It's really a most essential and important question. And of course the essential ground of this is that we develop, that we begin to integrate a clear, focused attention and mindful awareness based in kindness, into all dimensions of our being, making our body, our speech, our actions, our thoughts, our feelings, our relationships, our work, our play, our creative endeavors, all part of our practice. So, for instance, we can find many moments throughout our day we can when we can very just very simply bring our attention to the sensations of the breath or bring our attention to the body moving or offer metta offer a metta phrase to someone 
or to ourself. In almost any cir- or almost any circumstance, almost any activity. So from this perspective, it's really not so different, we could say, from our practice in a retreat setting. Really, all of the conditions, all, all of the relationships in our lives are wonderful mirrors for our practice. The joys and the irritations, the annoyances and the delights, the frustrations and the satisfactions, the pleasant and the unpleasant, the likes and the dislikes, all that we experience, every one of those we've experienced in life here in retreat, and we experience all of this in our life outside of retreat. It's all part of our practice. A woman who sat a retreat that I, I taught in Israel quite a number of years ago now, <clears throat> and who had long before I met her, met her uh, lived in a spiritual community in France uh, that was guided by the philosopher and spiritual teacher Gurdjieff. And this woman told me uh, a story that's really a wonderful mirror uh, of a particular and quite difficult life situation in this community being the perfect practice. She said that in this community in France, there, where she was living, there was an old man who was a very difficult, irascible fellow. She said he was very messy and argumentative. And he, she said he wouldn't cooperate. He, she said he wouldn't help with things, and basically he didn't get along with others in the community much at all. She said that no one liked him very much, and that he himself didn't seem to like very many of the people in the community either. And then she said that he tried for a long time to stay in the community. But it was really quite difficult for him, as well as for the others that lived there. And it was so difficult that she said he finally left and he went to Paris. He couldn't bear it anymore. Well, Gurdjieff followed him to Paris. And and Gurdjieff tried to convince this man to return to the community. But the man said, nope, he couldn't do it. It was just too hard to be there. Well, then, Gurdjieff offered him a monthly stipend to come back. This was a very poor man. He had no money at all. And so he couldn't refuse Gurdjieff's offer of a monthly stipend. So he returned to the community. And the woman said that when he arrived, everyone in the community was aghast. And then they were even more aghast, she said, when they found out that he was being paid to be there. Because they themselves actually had to pay to live in this community. So Gurdjieff called a meeting. And he listened to everyone's complaints. And then she said he laughed. And he said, This man is yeast for your bread. Without him... You would never learn about anger, irritability, patience, the heart of unconditional kindness and compassion. That's why you pay me and I pay him. 
the conditions of our lives and the people in our lives are certainly all part of our practice potentially. They're yeast for our bread, yeast for the purification of our heart and mind, yeast for our awakening, yeast for our liberation. And in relationship to the uh, four Brahma-viharas, the four divine abidings, there's one teaching among the 84,000 that the Buddha is said to have offered uh, during his life of teaching, where the Buddha uses the metaphor of a mother who has four sons for the development and the flowering of the four divine abidings, metta, karuna, mudita, and upekka, unconditional loving kindness, compassion, empathetic joy, and equanimity. Each one of the sons in this teaching, because of his particular age and personality and particular karmic manifestations, calls forth from the mother one of the divine abidings. Well, I only have three sons, but they certainly have managed to be some of my very strongest teachers in many, many ways over the years. Our closest people can often be some of our best teachers. Just simply them being who they are. What they need from us, what they give to us, and what they show us. So, as an example, my two oldest sons, who had their 55th birthday this June, are identical twins. And they continue to show me, they continue to teach me a relationship that I think is very rare. They're very, very close friends. And although when they were little boys... They would certainly fight with each other and bother each other as children do. But over all these years, they've never talked about each other or to each other in negative or judgmental ways. And no matter what one or the other is feeling, no matter what one or the other has done or not done, and no no matter how one or the other's life is going and they're not just to say they're not each other's keeper they're not uh, they're not codependent with each other but they always treat each other with respect and with care and without judgment and they've been through lots of ups and downs like all of us and I think, I think it's really a rare and unusual relationship. And sometimes I'm in awe of it. And I always learn from it. Every aspect of life is potentially a teaching. Every aspect of life has the potential to reveal the truth to us. And some words from the Buddha. As a bee seeks nectar from all kinds of flowers, 
seek teachings everywhere. Like a deer that finds a quiet place to graze, seek seclusion to digest all that you have gathered. And so we included all. And we included all and learned not to cling to any of it. There's a a poem by a Turkish poet uh, by the name of, I'm not sure if I pronounce it properly, Edib Kansavir. Kansavir. The the translator is Richard Tillinghast. And uh, this poem in its own particular way talks about this. The The title of the poem is called Table. A man filled with gladness, with the gladness of living, put his keys on the table, put flowers in a copper bowl there, He put his eggs and milk on the table. He put there the light that came in through the window. Sound of a bicycle, sound of a spinning wheel. The softness of bread and weather he put there. On the table the man put things that happened in his mind. What he wanted to do in life, he put that there. Those he loved, those he didn't love, the man put them on the table too. Three times three makes nine. The man put nine on the table. He was next to the window, next to the sky. He reached out and placed on the table endlessness. So many days he had wanted to drink a beer. He put on the table the pouring of that beer. He placed there his sleep and his wakefulness, his hunger and fullness he placed there. Now that's what I call a table. It didn't complain at all about the load. It wobbled once or twice, then stood firm, and the man kept piling things on. The key to the door the linchpin for the wheel of the cart that turn by turn moves along this sacred noble path is first and foremost a strong, clear, mindful attention that's deeply grounded in concentration and kindness. And it's true that there's some change in the depth and the sustaining quality of the focusing power of the mind that you developed over these weeks. A change from how it is in retreat, a retreat such as this, when we connect with a larger world. And it's true there's some change in the depth and sustaining quality of mindfulness and investigation from how it is in a retreat such as this, as we reconnect with the larger world. And although the same degree and depth of concentration, mindfulness, and investigation is not usually totally sustained outside of a retreat setting, the concentration, mindfulness, and investigation capacities that developed 
along with the multi-dimensional facets of understanding, of wisdom that have blossomed for each of you in this retreat. All of this is a great support and a great protection as we reconnect with the larger world. There's a change, yes, but we don't lose it. Mindfulness, concentration, investigation, and the heart's release that occurs through metta practice and the continued blossoming of wisdom are always, always available to us. Many years ago at the end of a, I think it was a two-month retreat that I sat with the Saida Upandita and two other Burmese monks, I had a brief conversation with one of the monks. And I asked him if there was any advice he might give me around taking practice into the whole of my life. And this was his response. You need to eat to stay alive and be healthy. You need to sleep to stay alive and be healthy. You need to meditate to stay alive and be healthy. So a very simple, very direct response that I've never forgotten. And there are some particular ways that I and others uh, have found to be very helpful in bringing uh, a simple uh, and yet direct immediate focus of mindful attention into our life. So one suggestion, this was uh, uh, given to me from a teaching colleague, is that at the end of each hour of the day, Just take one or two minutes to stop and be still and simply connect with the movement or the sensations of the breath in the belly. Just that. So however long your waking day is, that could be 15 or 30 minutes of a very direct, focused, mindful time with, in fact, each of these moments having an effect on the moments that follow. Another way to carry our practice into our daily life is to remember at moments uh, during the day to touch into the physical sensations through contact. So, real simple. Feet on the ground. Your bottom touching a chair or a cushion. Hands touching each other. touch points anywhere. Mindfulness and concentration, doing that mindfulness and concentration are immediately connected with and strengthened each time you do this. Another another suggestion, remembering to offer some metaphrases to the drivers that are around you when you're caught in traffic, whether you're driving or sitting in the car. Somebody else might be driving. Or when you're in a line in the grocery store offering metta to others in the line. I think that the only hard thing, these are very simple practices, the only hard thing about doing these very brief meditation sessions is to remember to do them. 
<laughs> That's the hardest part of it, is to remember to do them. I know some people who put little notes to themselves uh, around their home or in their workplace or in their study uh, to remind them to check in. So maybe something like a note on the bathroom mirror. Breath. Maybe a little stand-up note on your desk at home or at work. Still breathing. <laughs> or meta now. Or, or, or just here now. There was a fellow on staff at the Insight Meditation Society when I lived there um, as resident teacher. And he worked in the front office. It was a busy place. And he had a small stand-up note on his desk that said buttocks. It was there to remind him to bring his attention to the touch points uh, of his bottom on the chair every now and then. And it also brought... uh, a lot of laughs every time people saw the note. The former director of the forest refuge, um, the forest refuge being, most of you probably know, the long-term practice center on the IMS campus, he programmed his computer to sound the ring of a mindfulness bell every 45 minutes to remind him to stop and check in with his breath for a couple of moments. And I found out about this because I was in the middle of a meeting with him. And all of a sudden, a bell rang. And he stopped talking, like dead stopped. And he, I looked at him. And he, he said, it's time to stop, he said. That's our bell. So we stopped for about five minutes, actually. And we breathed. Closed our eyes, sat there. And then went back to our meeting. It was wonderful thought it was just a, a, a wonderful um, practice few moments that he did all day long in his office. Walking meditation. Walking meditation can be uh, a very important and powerful aspect of our practice in the world. An important aspect of continuing with and strengthening concentration and mindfulness. Most of us walk at least a few miles just going from place to place through a day or at least certainly through a week. And we can make some of this walking time practice. Practice walking. When I lived at IMS as the resident teacher for the staff, my workroom and my living space, they were both the same room, were up on the second floor of the main building, the large building there. And because I did many, many practice meetings with staff and I had lots of other meetings during a week, I didn't have time during the day to do any walking meditation. So I decided that every time I went up and down the stairs would be my walking practice. And once I decided to do this, I did it most days. And I had to go up and down the stairs quite a few times during a day. Well, uh, at one point a staff came, came to my room for his practice meeting. And he was, um, he was quite agitated. And, and with some difficulty, he told me that he was upset because he, he said I was ignoring him. And he, he said that he felt abandoned by me. He said that whenever he passed me on the stairs, he said I wouldn't even look at him. And he was wondering if I was angry with him um, and what was going on. 
And I told him that going up and down the stairs was my walking meditation time. And that I certainly had not abandoned him, and nor was I the least bit angry with him. It's just that I was practicing as deeply as I could going up and down the stairs. Well, as soon as I said that, it completely changed his attitude. And he said he was so happy for me, and he thought it was just a great idea. (laughs) People may not always understand what you're up to when you integrate practice into your life in small ways. But do it anyway. Use your life wisely. And of course, it's really helpful to connect with others who practice. As we all know from being here in retreat together, and it's been spoken of by some of you, the support that is felt, so important. If you're not connected, at least sometimes, with a group, even just a group of maybe two or three, to sit with once in a while, check and see if there's a sitting group where you live. And if there isn't one, start one. Which might mean just asking one or two people you know who meditate, or or maybe somebody who wants to learn to meditate, to join you once a week or every other week and sit together. You might first read something out loud, read some teachings out loud, maybe listen to a Dhamma talk, maybe taking turns each week, who chooses what's being read and what's, what, what you'll listen to. And then after the sit, you might have take some time to have a bit of a Dhamma discussion. Maybe, and maybe talk about your practice with each other. And I think it can also be helpful at times to pick a theme, maybe for a week, or a theme that goes over a couple of weeks, so, so that you can orient your, your readings and your discussion around a particular Dhamma theme. We really do need the connection and the support and the inspiration of others who are interest, interested in the Buddhist teachings and practice. The Buddha, in a conversation with Ananda, spoke about the tremendous importance of the connection with spiritual friends. And the Venerable Ananda, speaking to the Buddha, said, Half of this holy life, O Lord, is good and noble friends, companionship with the good, association with the good. And the Buddha's response to Ananda was this, Do not say that, Ananda. It's the whole of this holy life, this friendship, companionship, and association with the good. Use your life wisely. Use your energy wisely. Let every moment as much as possible, be a conscious, a conscious intent to practice. Meditation is one of the greatest arts in life, maybe, maybe the greatest, actually. And it can take place anytime, anywhere, when we have the intention to live awake. 
as we go into the larger world, if we're patient and determined in our practice, it's inevitable that calm, tranquility, kindness, and joy increase. It's inevitable that peace increases, that wisdom increases. It's inevitable that our ability to live a beneficial and a compassionate life increases. And another very short Nanao Sakaki poem. If you have time to chatter, read books. If you have time to read, walk into the mountain, desert, and ocean. If you have time to walk, sing songs and dance. If you have time to dance, sit quietly, you happy, lucky idiot. (laughs) (laughs) And closing the talk with a poem by Native American poet Joy Harjo. And just to let you know that very, very recently, Joy Harjo was bestowed with the honor of being the first Native American poet laureate in the United States. So she is now our poet laureate. And she calls this poem Eagle Poem. To pray, you open your whole self to sky, to earth, to sun, to moon, to one whole voice that is you, and know there is more that you can't see, can't hear, can't know, except in moments steadily growing, and in languages that aren't always sound, but other circles of motion. Like eagle that Sunday morning over Salt River, circled in blue sky, in wind, swept our hearts clean with sacred wings. We see you, see ourselves, and know that we must take the utmost care and kindness in all things. Breathe in, knowing we are made of all this, and breathe, knowing we are truly blessed because we're born and die soon within a true circle of motion like eagle rounding out the morning inside us. We pray that it will be done in beauty. In beauty. When Saidao asked me to give the closing talk, he suggested that I talk a little bit about the fact that um, uh, this is my last retreat teaching uh, here with Mountain Hermitage retreats, but my last retreat teaching overall. So I, I, I had some hesitation about talking about this, but I will say a little bit about it. The Mountain Hermitage has been uh, happening for about 15 years. And I've been the guiding teacher since day one uh, and before that. (laughs) 
with the uh, the um, intention to create the mountain hermitage. And I've been teaching the whole 15 years uh, mountain hermitage retreats. And it's been a great joy. And at the same time, it's been a very uh, ongoing, powerful practice with me, for me. Uh, With me and for me. (laughs) With a tremendous learning during this 15 years regarding the incredible and uh, the, the incredible variety and complexity of our conditioned human nature that I continue to learn about. And I continue to learn about it through my own uh, practice and through the engagement with all of you and all of the people that have come here to practice. So it's been an amazing learning opportunity for me. The other learning, some of the other learning opportunity has been around organizing, uh, organizing this configuration of a retreat center and, uh, and being on task, not putting anything off till tomorrow. That's been a great learning for me with all of the details, many, many details, regarding running a retreat center uh, and offering retreats myself and um, inviting and then uh, helping to organize a variety of other teachers over the years who come here to teach. So flexibility. It's been a tremendous learning and being very flexible. which means letting go. Flexibility and being able to let go again and again and again and again and again of any fixed ideas, fixed attitudes of how things must be, how things have to be, how things need to be in relationship to other people, in relationship to this configuration of a retreat center and letting it unfold and being present with it as it unfolds. And I think, as I mentioned just a few minutes ago, the most important, really, the most important and the most illuminating and the most inspiring and growth-producing aspect of this 15 years with the Mountain Hermitage uh, has been how much I've learned from all the yogis, all of the people that come here to practice. It is, it has been amazing, profound, and certainly sometimes quite challenging. But I have learned more than I even know. <laughs> comes comes uh, comes to me little by little that I've what I've learned uh, on many many levels, and I'm deeply deeply grateful for it. So thank you each of you in your for your contribution to teaching me and just to say very briefly that i'm not teaching retreats anymore this is the last one but the mountain hermitage goes on it will go on and i have been requested to continue to be the guiding teacher um, by the board and 
by Kathy, who you've all met. Kathy said, if I wasn't the guiding teacher, she can't continue to work for the Mountain Hermitage. I said, are you threatening me, Kathy? <laughs> she said, no, no, I really, I mean it. I mean it, you know, no threat. <laughs> I, I, I have agreed uh, wholeheartedly, actually, to continue to be the guiding teacher as long as this body and mind configuration will allow me to do that. So that will go on. And we have a very full and wonderful uh, array of teachers coming. Next year, there's still a few retreats left uh, in this year, and we're working on the following year, hoping that uh, Sayadaw and Sayale will be coming again. I'm saying it out loud so they <laughs> can't say no. <laughs> So thank you, everybody. Let's sit quietly for just a moment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.